Hey guys. All right. Did you guys have a good day? Did you guys play broom hockey? You should have. It's the best. Love broom hockey. Although one of the counselors was you. We we. I don't know if we were playing broom hockey. We were just kind of having like a, a boxing match out there. That was that moment. It was. It was. We 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 hugged. Um, I. Anyway, let's move on. Um, it's just a bad route to go down. Uh, so, I hope you guys had a good day. I, I, hope, uh, I hope you had a lot of fun. And, and I hope you had some time to, to think about what we've been talking about together. Some time to, to ponder the things that, that we've studied and that we've read as we've explored this book of Ecclesiastes. We're, we're going to continue talking about these two big problems that we've set up so far. But before we do, I want to I want to pray, and then we'll open up God's word. Father, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for this time that we could just uh, gather together here at camp. Thank you for a, a time and a place where we could come and just spend time um, opening your word, spend time with friends, spend time in, in conversations and discussions. God, I pray that uh, I pray that your spirit would do a work in the hearts of these students. That tonight, as we, as we talk about this ultimate truth, the truth of the gospel, God, I, I pray that my words would be clear, that you would move through the preaching of your word this evening, and God, I pray that the hearts and the minds of all of us would be open to what you have, that we would see the truth and the beauty and the power of the good news of your glorious grace. Father, please just guide our time this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I started out our first time together talking a little bit about, um, about my family, and I shared with you guys that my wife and I are kind of polar opposites on optimism versus pessimism, right? My wife's the pessimist, I'm the optimist, and uh, how many of you guys in here, you would say, I'm... I'm more or less an optimist. That, that kind of fit into that category. How many of you guys are, are the pessimists in here? All right, well, pessimists, I need to talk to you for a second, okay? Now, you need to understand this comes from a place of love, okay? Because I, I, I love a pessimist more than I love anyone else in this whole world, all right? So when I say this, I don't want you to take it personally. But also hear me here, Okay? You guys annoy the crap out of us, okay? And, and here's, here's how. Because pessimists are really great at pointing out problems, but they're a lot less great at bringing up solutions to those problems. You notice that? Like, you pessimists, you're probably really good movie critics, but you're probably not a ton of fun to watch a movie with, right? Um, that, that's, that's the problem of, of pessimism, and in some ways... Uh, that applies to the book of Ecclesiastes. You see, Ecclesiastes doesn't give us a lot of solutions. Uh, it's 12 chapters long, and for the bulk of those 12 chapters, Solomon is lamenting this problem, this problem of, of um, the temporal world, this problem of impermanence, this, this problem of uh, of purposelessness of a lack of meaning that we've talked about this weekend. 
And at the very end of the book, he gives just a little kind of glimmer of an answer, but, but he doesn't give the maybe clearest, most profound answer in the, the words of the book of Ecclesiastes. However, God in his infinite wisdom and his mercy and his grace, he does give us a very clear answer in scripture. It just doesn't come until much, much later. So today, tonight, instead of opening up to Ecclesiastes, we're going to open up somewhere very different. Uh, we're going to open up to the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians. Because I think while the answer to these two problems that we've been talking about is sprinkled throughout the whole Bible, I think one of the places where it comes out most clearly and most powerfully is in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2. So open there with me. If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2, and what I want to do tonight is I want to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we're going to go back and we're going to walk through that entire section together and see how it offers us answers to these two big problems of life, all right? Two big problems of life under the sun. So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's stop right there. This is the problem, or, or the problems, rather, that we've talked about this week, right? This is our condition. And in those first three verses, we see Paul spell out the condition that we've talked about this weekend. He spells out the temporal problem, right? The problem under the sun, the problem in our life today. He says it like this. He says that you are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. What does that mean? What is the temporal problem? It's following the prince of the power of the air, following the course of the world, right? It's that picture of the bloodhound who's seeking after all kinds of different sins. Because as it says in Ecclesiastes, we have eternity written on our hearts. We have a longing for purpose, a longing for meaning, and we live in a world where people are finding that meaning or attempting to find that meaning in all kinds of different things. They're attempting to find fulfillment in all kinds of different things, in money, in, in sex, in relationships, in academic achievement, in um, dominance in sports, whatever it is. They're seeking that fulfillment. They're seeking that meaning. They're seeking that purpose in all kinds of different, different worldly pursuits. And you and I were or are the same exact way. Among whom we all once walked, following the course of this world. But then what does he say? Following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? 
the devil. That's Satan. See, we live in a world that is sidetracked with all of these things and seeking after all of these things rather than God. And in doing so, they are serving their master. Their master is simply not the God that made them, but it's Satan who desires their destruction. That's the truth of this world, and that's the truth of you and me. But then he also talks about following the passions of our flesh. It says, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, we're seeking after all of these things, and we are enslaved to our base desires, to the passions of our flesh. We are powerless to fight against those things. And so our lives look like how Solomon described his, right? I didn't keep anything from myself. Everything that my eyes desired, I looked at. Everything that I wanted, I took. And we live the same way. That's the the temporal problem. But there's also an eternal problem. And that eternal problem, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 2 describes it like this. He says, and we were by nature... Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what we talked about this morning, right? In our pursuit of purpose and all kinds of other things, we sin against God, we commit cosmic treason against the king of the universe, and we are by nature, what? Children of wrath. What does that mean? It means that we deserve nothing from God but his judgment, We deserve nothing from God but his wrath. We deserve nothing from our king but the payment for our treason, which is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The punishment for sin, the payment for sin, what we've earned by our sin, what we have earned for ourselves is death. But you may have noticed here in Ephesians chapter 2, while Paul calls us children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, following after Satan, just like the rest of mankind, while he applies those things, he goes even a step further in talking about the eternal nature of our problem. He doesn't just say that we're children of wrath, therefore deserving of death for our sin, but right there at the beginning, in verse 1, what does he say? You were dead. See, on our own, apart from Christ, this is the reality. We don't just deserve death for our sins, but we are dead because of our sins. Now, what does that mean? Right? Because my my lungs are breathing and my heart is beating. I'm standing here before you. Clearly, my body isn't dead, and it never was. But if we're in our sin, apart from Christ, the reality is that we are spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead in the sense that we deserve the wrath of God that is being stored up for those who reject him. 
We deserve his righteous wrath against our sin, his righteous punishment for our treason. We deserve that. But even beyond that, we are currently dead in our sins in the sense that we are completely unable to save ourselves. I used to have a dog who uh, had a, a chronic condition um, where we had to take him to the vet every month to, to get a shot, right? And, and my, my dog, he would go to the, the vet, he would get his shot, and, and if he got the shot, he'd be totally fine, right? Totally fine, he could run, play, do all the different things, but, but if we didn't take him to the vet, pretty soon what would happen with this disease he had is his, his organs would effectively start shutting down and he would die. Like that would be the result of if he didn't get his medicine. But he wasn't dead yet. And there were things that we could do in order to, to keep him healthy, right? That's not our spiritual condition. I think sometimes we think it is. Sometimes we think, well, I'm a pretty good person. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not perfect, but if I do the right things, then, then I'll be fine. Now, the reality of our spiritual condition apart from Christ is not the dog who needs to go to the vet to stay healthy. It's the dog who's flat on the freeway, who's been hit by a big rig. There's nothing that anyone can do. There's nothing that dog can do to make itself alive again. That is the reality of our problem and our sin. The temporal problem for all of mankind is that life under the sun, if it's all there is, it's meaningless. And so we follow the prince of the power of the air. We follow the way of this world. We are enslaved to our flesh, enslaved to our desires. But the eternal problem is that we are children of wrath, deserving of God's righteous wrath against our sin, and we are dead in our sin and powerless to do anything to save ourselves. That's the pessimist time. That's the problem. But then the very next verse starts with two of the most beautiful words you'll ever hear. Two of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Here's our problem. We are by nature children of wrath. We are dead in our sin. We are destined for hell. We are following the prince of the power of the air. We are given to the passions of our flesh. But then, look at verse 4. It starts with this. But God. That's who you are. That's your problem. But God. There's someone else who plays into the equation. There's something else that comes in here. On your own, you are powerless to save yourself. Powerless to fix your problem. Powerless to find meaning. Powerless to find purpose. Powerless to make this life under the sun worth anything. You are powerless in all of those things. But God. God enters into the equation here and he completely changes the math. It says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us 
alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, we deserve God's wrath. On our own, we are helpless to save ourselves. We are helpless to give our lives purpose and meaning that is real and true and lasting and ultimate. But God is rich in love and mercy and grace. The God who made us, the God who spoke the very universe into existence, the God who all things are made by him and through him and to him, he also knows you and he loves you and he cares for you. He is rich in mercy and love and grace for his people. How rich? How rich is his mercy? How rich is his love? How rich is his grace? The answer is in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, should not face that spiritual death, should not face God's wrath that they deserve, but... They should have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. How rich is God in love and mercy and grace? He is so rich in love for us The book of Romans says it like this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead in our sin, deserving of nothing from God but the punishment for our treason against our king. And yet he looked down at us. He knows us, the deepest parts of us, the darkest sins, the things that that you hide from everyone else, the things that you don't want anyone to know because if they knew them, they would look at you differently, they would judge you. If they knew the things that you said or you did or you looked at, or if they knew it, then they would never see you the same way again. God knows every bit of it. He knows every nook and cranny, every dark corner of your heart, and yet... He so loved the world, he so loved you, that he sent his son to come and to live and to die the death that you deserve. The book of Philippians says it like this. It says that Jesus was in very nature God. He was God himself. He is God himself. And yet he did not consider all of the privileges of his deity, all all of the, the privileges of being God, something to be held tightly. But he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant. He was born as a a baby. 
a helpless little baby. We just celebrated Christmas a few weeks ago, right? We celebrated this incredible act of humility by which Christ, because of his love for his people, left heaven on high, came down, was born as a baby, and then he lived a perfect life. He grew up and never once sinned. Never once disobeyed God, never once sought his purpose or his meaning in anything other than the service of his father. Never once gave in to the, the desires of the flesh. He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And then, in Philippians it says that he humbled himself by becoming a servant And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived that perfect, sinless life that we could never live. And then he went and he died a sinner's death on a cross. A painful, humiliating death. The death of a criminal. A death befitting of the scum of the earth. And the king of creation died that death for you and for me. Here's the thing, here's the reality. When Jesus died on the cross, the pain that he suffered on our behalf, only a small part of it was physical. If you've grown up in the church, if you've been in chapel services like this before, you've probably at some point had someone walk you through all of the physical pain that Jesus faced as he went to the cross. The, the beatings, the, the lashings, being nailed to the cross and not being able to breathe, being mocked. You've probably had someone walk through all of that with you. And when you do that, when you think on that, when you ponder that, it turns the stomach. The Bible says he was so beaten that he didn't even resemble a man anymore. His flesh was hanging off of his bones. It was horrific and gruesome and grisly but that's just a small window into the spiritual reality, the spiritual pain that Jesus shouldered for you and for me. Because as he hung on that cross and as he died that death that we deserve, it was not just the physical pain, it was the cup of God's wrath being poured out onto his son. Jesus Christ, the eternal son to the eternal father who had spent all of eternity past in nothing but loving relationship with God hung there on the cross for you and for me as the father poured out his righteous wrath against your sin and against mine on to Jesus. And Jesus felt the full brunt of God's hatred of sin. And he burdened that on his shoulders. Because only he could bear it. And he died the death that we deserve. But God. Three days later, God rose him from the dead. 
Spirit of God rose the Son of God from the dead to the glory of God the Father. Three days later, Jesus walked out of the grave, conquering death on your behalf and on mine. And so now, we can say this, God being rich in love and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, Jesus died for our sin, but he rose so that we could have eternal life through him. He died to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin, but he rose again to give us new life. Eternal life. Everlasting life. Abundant life. He died and he rose to give us life. And if our faith and trust is in Christ, then God raises us to new life along with him. So what does this new life look like? What is the everlasting life that is available to everyone who believes in him? What is the abundant life that Jesus said he came to give? What does it look like? Well, I think the answer, once again, is here in Ephesians chapter 2. I think the answer comes in the, in the solution to the two big problems of man. First, we see the solution to the eternal problem. We're dead in our trespasses, deserving of God's wrath, and he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. That speaks to this idea that we sometimes call justification. Justification, being made right with God, having the record of our sin wiped clean, being washed white as snow before a holy and righteous God, being made holy as he is holy. In the ultimate accounting of things, we are justified and made alive together with Christ, but that's not all. As we continue, we see this, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. See, we, are, we have our sins wiped away. We are given new life through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that also means that we, if our faith and our trust is in him, then our ultimate eternal destiny changes. For those of us who are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we're heading straight on a course towards an eternity in hell, an eternity under the wrath of God. But for those of us who are in Christ, our sins are wiped away, and our eternal destination fundamentally changes because now we are headed for an eternity in heaven with God that in the age to come, the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. But that's not all. See, he, he wipes away our sin. He 
puts us on, on this path towards heaven, and he also adopts us into his family. If we jump down in Ephesians chapter 2 to verse 13, we see this, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. So we have this big eternal problem, the problem that we deserve God's wrath, the problem that we're dead in our sin and we're helpless to do anything about it. And so Jesus goes and he lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross and he rises again that that problem might be fixed. God fixes the eternal problem by justifying us, saving us from our sins, by adopting us into his family and by bringing us to live in eternity with him in heaven. And so often, when we think about the gospel, that's what we think about. This idea that Jesus died to pay for my sins, that's absolutely true. But listen, the gospel doesn't just bring an answer to our temporal problem. Sorry, to our eternal problem. It doesn't just bring an answer to this problem of being dead in our sin, of deserving God's wrath. It also brings an answer to that temporal problem, the problem we've seen in Ecclesiastes, this problem of purpose. So if we read in verse 8, this is what we see. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the temporal problem of living in this life that's just the rat race, it's this grind over and over and over again, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The gospel solves that problem. How? First, by giving us freedom. By giving us freedom, he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not that of yourselves. What does that mean? It means that you don't earn your way to heaven. You can't scrap your way there. You can't be good enough. You can't be holy enough. You can't be righteous enough because you're dead in your sin. It is by grace. It is through God's righteousness that you are saved. And there is an incredible amount of freedom in that truth. An incredible amount, amount of freedom that helps you to realize that ultimately the work has been done for you, but it also gives us purpose. Because right after that, right after he says that we are saved by grace through faith so that no one may boast. It says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel also gives us purpose. It also gives us purpose. It helps us to realize that we were created by God in order that we might serve him. And our works are not what earn us a spot in his family. We don't do good in order that God might accept us. We don't do good in order that God might save us. No. 
We do good because God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We do good works because we were made by our creator to do good works that he has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. We do good works because we've fallen in love with the God who loves us so much that he died for us and that he rose for us. That's the only place that purpose, genuine, ultimate, eternal, lasting purpose comes from. From realizing that our lives are not made to be our own. They're made to be His. And when we surrender to that truth... When we say, I'm done searching for meaning, I'm done searching for purpose, I'm, I'm, I'm done trying to earn anything on my own because it's all yours. When we do that, we feel an incredible sense of freedom and an incredible sense of purpose because our purpose is not for us, but it's for him. In Galatians 2.20, it says this, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does that mean? It means that when we follow Christ, our lives are fundamentally changed. They're fundamentally made new. And they belong to him. That Christ would live in us in a way that brings us eternal and everlasting purpose that we would seek him above all else, that we would love him and desire him and serve him above absolutely everything. Because that is the only way that we will ever find meaning under the sun. There's some of you here tonight who've never put your faith and trust in Christ. If that's you, then I want you to know, you might believe me, you might not, but I love you enough to tell you this. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses, you're dead in your sins. You're a slave to your flesh, a slave to your desires, a slave to your sin. You're following the course of this world. First John even goes so far as to say that you are a son or a daughter of Satan. You're deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God because you've committed treason against the king of the universe. But God is rich in mercy. He is full of grace. And he demonstrates his own love towards you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And he rose for you. That you might take the death that you have earned, that, that Jesus might take it on himself on the cross, and that he might give to you the life that he earned. 
a new life, an eternal life, an everlasting life that begins today as you redirect and reorient your life towards serving Him instead of chasing after meaning and all the other things. An eternal life that begins today and that continues on for all time, for all eternity. Even after your body is six feet in the ground, as you spend eternity experiencing the love and the mercy and grace that the Father will show you through Christ Jesus in heaven with him. Some of you have never done that. You've never moved from that death to life, but tonight you have that opportunity to put your faith and trust in Christ, to repent, to turn from your sins, to turn towards him, and to be made right with the God who made you, to be aligned with the purpose of your life. But there are others of you in here, maybe even more of you in here, who have trusted in Christ. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've heard the things that I'm saying a thousand times before. You say, yeah, I know Jesus. I, I prayed the prayer and I, I know the thing. And... But your life doesn't show it. And if I were to look at your life, I wouldn't see someone who's seeking after God above all other things. I would see someone who's still following the ways of the world prince of the power of the air, someone who is trying to find their meaning and their purpose and their identity and their fulfillment in everything else under the sun, who's serving their relationships or their popularity or their academics or their sports or whatever it is, you're serving that above all other things. You place that on the throne of your life where only Christ belongs. And you say, yeah, I've trusted in Jesus, but your life doesn't show it. Well, if that's you tonight, I want you to know that you are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You might say you put your faith and trust in Christ But if you're not living to that purpose, if you're not living your life in service of him above all else, then I think you need to ask, have I? Have I really trusted him? Have I really repented and turned from my sin? Is he really my God? Or am I worshiping an idol? In, in just a, a minute here, the band's going to come up. They're going to lead us in a song. And, and as we sing together this last song, I, I want you guys to just take some time to reflect. To think on these things. To think about the reality of who we are apart from Jesus. And think about the incredible mercy and grace of God. And how great a salvation he offers to us. Not just saving us from our sins, but giving us a new life. Giving us purpose. Giving us hope. Giving us an eternity living with him in his family forever. After the band leads us in this song, I'm going to come back up and we'll kind of have a time 
after you guys are dismissed, just to stay in here. If, if you're someone who's never put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you want to do that tonight, you want to turn from your sins, repent, you want to trust in him, and you want to have this new life that I'm talking about, then when we dismiss, when I come back up and I dismiss you guys, I would encourage you, please stay here. Stay in this room, stay in the chapel, talk to your counselors, ask them questions, open up scripture together, pray together, because that new life can start today. And if you're here and you've trusted in Jesus, but you still are searching for purpose in everything else under the sun, and you want that to change, you want to say, I want to walk in the good works that Christ has created me for. I want to follow and serve and worship and obey him above all else. And you want to dedicate yourself to that once again tonight. Then I would encourage you to stay as well. As the band leads us in this song, let's just uh, reflect on what God has done and what he's doing in your hearts this evening.